This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you and our patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news reviews and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, we're going across the Outlands to discuss the three-book collection of Planescape Adventures in the Multiverse. And joining us in this episode, we have, direct from her tour on the slopes of Mount Celestia, the most skilled musician in the multiverse, renowned for her performances and charisma in Sigil and beyond. You know her from Children of Irte and the Velvet Lodge. It's the content manager of Idol Champions of the Forgotten Realms, Lauren Urban. Wow, what an introduction. I'm so honored. Thank you very much. I, I For a second, because before the show, we were talking about Eliwick Tumblestrom. I could, was convinced you were talking about her. Oh. I'm like, yes, the, the great part in the multiverse. Absolutely. Yep, yep. Eliwick Tumblestrom. <laughs> awesome. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about Planescape Adventures in the Multiverse. Uh, it's a three-book set, including a monster book, a setting book, and one adventure published by Wizards of the Coast. This marks the return of a popular and acclaimed D&D setting from the second edition days, and we're here to see if they did the old setting justice in these three short books. To start off, it's disclosure time. Who's working from review copies? Uh, I am in terms of Beyond Gives Me It, like, mm-hmm. for free. I believe that I am and Tracy is from our uh, D&D Beyond um, supply, although there's also a physical copy coming to, to Tracy. She just hasn't gotten it yet. Um, Wizards has changed the way they do things, and now suddenly I'm not getting things ahead of time anymore. Uh, and so rather than sending three things in a row that I just got, Tracy's getting one big bundle as soon as I get the third one. <laughs> so. Physical product have become a, a challenge unto themselves. It has become a, a CR30 challenge rating for getting yes. any physical product out the door. So. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of us are, I mean, fortunately, the Planescape books are out there, but a lot of us are are happy with our D&D Beyond. I mean, right. especially me, but I, I might be biased. <laughs> well, in fairness, I usually end up doing most of my reading on through D&D Beyond anyway, because I have it on my iPad and I have my iPad with me all the time, whereas lugging around a three book set in, in, a, in a sleeve uh, would be a bit more of a chore. Um, so. yeah. So, so Lauren, uh, I take it that you are working from a paid copy of of the books. Uh no. I, this would be, I, I guess, I, I am also one of those fortunate people who get copies on D and D Beyond. But I also used to work for D and D Beyond. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, is it a review copy? No. Is it? It's yeah. D- disclaimer: No, mine was given to me. Yes. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't. We we ended up getting everything on D D Beyond years ago, mm-hmm. uh, because we were doing a review of D D Beyond, and they never turned it off. And I don't like to talk about it too much because I don't want to I don't want to clue somebody in if if they don't know. But um, it's it's been a crucial piece for us in in our reviews. So I hope they continue doing it even if they they hear this. So. Um, I mean, I think if they hear this, they'll just be happy that you're continuing to use it and like it. So I hope so. I hope so. And talk about it. Exactly. So we are talking about Planescape Adventures of the Multiverse. And um, as I briefly discussed, I don't know, last week on on the Discord, I think that... um, 
I think that Wizards is using the term multiverse in a way that is not consistent with the current use of the term. <laughs> well, current so. as in uh, TTRPG use or as in like well, the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I would argue that the Marvel concept of a multiverse, which is also what the DC concept and, and a lot of other properties has become sort of the zeitgeist of what a multiverse is. Yeah, uh, that's why I, I specifically pegged that one. Yeah. So yeah, so, absolutely. So in terms of it's not... D&D is not a collection of alternate alternate dimensions where things are slightly different, but otherwise it's the same world. It's completely different worlds. You know, it's not a multiverse when I can get out of Spelljammer and fly from one world to another. That's not a multiverse. That's just space. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know add the planes into it, it gets more complicated, but those are also definitely not alternate dimensions. It's a whole other thing. So... Anyway, it feels to me like Watsi is jumping on or really highlighting the concept of a multiverse here because it's it's in the zeitgeist. But it's not a multiverse in the way that we've come to be used it in 2023. Probably That's- not, no. But I, I kind of understand the why uh, as they put out settings, you know, irregardless of their history, as these settings come out that are more and more fantastical and wild and different mm-hmm. than Faerun, I think having a word that tells people that they're tied together, even if it's just in the grand scheme of things, that like, right. yes, it's still D&D. Yes, this is still the same mechanics. Yes, this is still the same, you know, gods and deities and all that kind of stuff. I think that makes sense, even if you're you're technically right, which is the, the best kind of correct. Um, but <laughs> that, yeah. said, that said, yours is the the best argument I've heard for just letting it go <laughs> so, because because I don't think well, you're wrong. Yeah, and for me, like I'm reading it, and I don't, I think this is what you mean, but I am actually not sure at this point. I'm reading this the this book, and I'm like absolutely Loki, the the series, and I don't <laughs> want to spoil Loki the series, but like. Are you sure they didn't like they should have the appendix where they just say go watch Loki and and you'll understand all of this. Yeah. The other thing that throws a little bit of a monkey wrench into it was when they released Dragonlance earlier because of all of the settings that they've put out. I think Dragonlance is the one and Kryn specifically is the one that you can point to as it being an alternate universe because that's kind of historically in previous editions the way it's been you know you, we don't talk about tiamat we talk about tachesis we don't talk about you know the, the all a lot of the stuff is different or was different enough in where this is a completely different universe well, so now them bringing it in and then like smoothing out those edges and saying yeah so it's tiamat but she's just called tachesis over here that kind of thing Although they've been doing that since first edition of saying, well, it's one god with multiple different names depending on who you talk to or where you go. So, yeah, I don't know. And and, yeah. and, and it's also been pointed out recently to me that um, Margaret Weiss and Tracy, Tracy Hickman apparently uh, do not like the fact that Wizards has just decided that Takasis or Takesis and Tiamat are the same thing. Um, that was not there. That was not uh approved by them at any point in time, even when, when TSR kind of did the same thing back in second edition. Mm, that I hadn't heard about, but I, yeah, I mean, I hadn't either, but 
Yeah. So I'm maybe I am kind of doing a little more hand waving with the whole multiverse (laughs) thing, but I do I do really feel like it's it's an umbrella term that gets the idea across, especially Mm -hmm. as you know, fifth edition has the largest player base ever of any of the editions. And so shepherding people who have spent the first good chunk of fifth edition life on Faerun or in the domains of dread, you know, one of those two places and being like, Hey, here's uh Kryn, and here's the radiant Citadel and here's uh, Sigil and all these other things. I think, mm-hmm. I think multiverse is kind of a, an easier concept for people to grasp. Uh, because but, it's because it's in the zeitgeist because it's out exactly there. so yeah that's fair and you and you know what those who are only familiar with the marvel cinematic universe have also already seen that multiversal idea go wonky <laughs> so you know it, it 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 means what it means no and and i and honestly like i mentioned it but it's probably the least important part of, of talking about these books and figuring out if what, what they're all about. So, uh, and if they're any good, right? So, yeah. Uh, now, I did a quick Wikipedia skim, and I believe Uh-oh. that second edition Planescape had 17 different books, some of which were box sets, um, mm-hmm. two, and two novels. It is not probably reasonable to think that they have recreated the glory days of second edition Planescape in these three thin books. No, absolutely not. That said, I want to I want to talk a little bit about whether or not it holds up. Uh, And I'm I'm curious what everybody's experience is with second edition Planescape. I played a good amount of second edition Planescape. It was one of my favorite settings. Uh, before this, the only direct uh, interactions with Planescape I had was in fourth edition, okay. which I still love, even though I know is a contentious issue, but that's not what we're talking about today. Uh, and playing Planescape Torment on the computer. Okay. <laughs> Those are my two interactions with Sigil and uh-huh. just Planescape in general. That's That said, the first, and we haven't, gotten into it yet but the first part of the adventure in this collection like i'm i'm reading through it i'm like oh they really want to hook into the planescape torment fans out there don't they oh yeah <laughs> like oh <hard>. absolutely <laughs> yeah oh 100% although i find it interesting that they're doing that with a uh i don't know how deep into spoilers we're going to get at least for the adventure but they're doing that with a hook that i think a lot of groups and or dungeon masters might not want to surprise their players with maybe well and we'll and we'll yeah we'll talk about that as we get further in tracy what's your experiences with planescape prior to this i my brother has the planescape um box set i think the first one mm-hmm. uh and i read through that once <laughs> okay so, passing familiarity with uh, with Planescape. Yeah. Okay. Because it's it's worth noting, it's worth noting like, it, I like mechanically, they've abandoned a lot of what was in Second Edition Planescape. The question becomes for me then: How well does it capture the feel of Second Edition Planescape? And that's really why. 
originally Brenda Stoddard, everybody uh, was supposed to be on this episode and then scheduling things came up at the last minute and he's not here. And I'm, I, I don't know this, but deep down in my soul, I know for a fact that Brenda's played second edition Planescape. <laughs> like, uh, it, or at the very least probably has a, oh. a, at least a better knowledge than I do for sure. Um, I, I feel certain he played it, but I don't actually know that for a fact. So, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say one of the interesting things about it is I rem- the art was what really stuck out to me from at least the box set. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they kept some of that style, but not a ton really. Uh, no. And so it's hard for me to even start to compare because honestly, that does impact me. I, I used to not, I used to think it didn't, but I, you know, it definitely impacts me. And, and I, so I didn't get necessarily this, the same full feel, mm-hmm. uh, but the wackiness I think still came through, but we can talk about that more. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think, um, yes, I agree. Tony Dieterlizzi, um is, did the, did the art, like almost all of it for second edition Planescape. I think yeah. I think he made a career and a full time job out of out of doing art for Planescape books um, for a time, um, and it it defined the setting uh, mm-hmm. in, in many and profound ways. The art in these books is significantly different. Like there there is definitely like homages paid to some of what he established. And it was interesting to me, like, as I'm looking at some of the art, going back to thinking about the planes, the, the second edition days, like, the Dieter Lisi art was very, I don't know, it made the setting feel very gritty and dirty mm. and dark uh, and, and lots of sharp edges. And it was dangerous, right? Uh, and this art... Well, and was- it was... Oh, go ahead. It was line art too, yeah. for the most part. Like it, what these were mostly paintings, and that was line art, and they, yeah. and he could do lots of different things, like you're saying, the sharp edges, and while also still having some organic shapes and flow to it and stuff like that. That yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, absolutely, and and this that's art, a good point. This art, um, I I saw this art, and I'm like, oh, that's what sigil is supposed to look like in color. That's a lot, like brighter and shinier than I, than I would have anticipated, even from like, uh, uh, the Planescape video game, it was kind mm-hmm. of dark and edgy. And suddenly it's like, Oh no, there, there's, there's sunlight and there's greenery and there's color. And like, that's not the sigil I came to know, <laughs> uh, in the past. I don't think it, I don't think it completely pulls me out of sigil and, and makes me think it's not the same place, but it's a different perspective on the location. Yeah. And I think some of that is once again the the modern audience that either is used to the way the fifth edition has been made visually mm-hmm. and or are only familiar with the way fifth edition has been doing art. I think um stylistically they they kept within oh, this is fifth edition art, fifth edition D D art. And so yeah, you're I think you're missing some of that grittiness, but I what I liked was because, and part of this is because the book has to deal not just with Sigil, but then all the Outlands. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the the skeleton of a lot of things that second edition spent multiple books going over. But I think one of the good things about it is you get to see the variety of stuff. Like, for me, one of the draws of of Planescape is 
not just Sigil itself, and but the Outlands being tied to it mm-hmm. because it's such a rich collection of areas and settings that is completely different than any other modern fantasy really that's out there. And I think showing the showing the differences, not just showing the the grittiness of Sigil, but then also showing, oh, you can go to the Beastlands. And and so part of the Beastlands is kind of represented here. Or there's this whole mortuary section, which I mean, if you want to talk about gritty, the mortuary. Um, So like showing the variety that you can encounter, I think, is if you're going to lose out on the that excellent line art artwork that has the grittiness built into it, I think what you lose out in that, you gain in variety and color and in situations and settings and everything. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it is interesting, though, because one of – and this is why there had to be so many different books and, and several box sets for the second edition Planescape was – that Planescape wasn't just about Sigil and the Outlands. Sigil and the Outlands were the centerpiece and it was connected to all the other planes. And so it it was a setting about traveling to different planes. You don't get that here. Yeah. Tracy, you you look like you want to say something. Oh, no. It's because like that was one of the things that stuck out to me when I read the box set because there were times when you could you kind of roll dice die and you figure out what plane you go to. And it could just be a plane that's completely covered in lava and you have no no way of knowing before you go there and you're just poof in there. Yeah, no. And and to give to give listeners who maybe aren't like we I keep tying things back to the way Planescape used to be. Right. Uh, And I think that's valid. and And I'm. I'm going to keep doing it, <laughs> but, but to give people a, a sense that maybe aren't as familiar, the idea of the Planescape setting is, is it, it builds off of what was called the Great Wheel cosmology back in the day. And that's that all of the planes of existence are tied to sort of the, the alignment system of D&D that has sort of been played down and is less important, arguably, um, in 5th edition. And I guess probably started to become less important in fourth edition because it wasn't a huge deal there either. Um, but the idea is that each sort of alignment on the, what is it, the nine um, alignments have a different um, plane associated with them. So so uh, hell is the lawful evil, whereas the abyss is the chaotic evil. And there's, you know, there's the lawful good Mount Celestia and and on and on and on on all the way around. And then in the center of this great wheel of planes is the outlands, which is sort of this malleable neutral-ish area um, that at the edges, the closer you get to the planes, to the different planes, the more it sort of takes on the aspects of whatever plane you're getting closer to. So the closer you get to the abyss, the more abyss-like, the outlands becomes until um, things just completely fall off. One of the, the, one of the great and interesting things about Planescape is, um, and they toy with this a little bit in, in, like they discuss it a little bit in the, in the setting text. They kind of comes up in the adventure a little bit, but one of the things that, that makes Planescape interesting is belief forms reality. And mm-hmm. if enough people believe something or believe some or or there's enough strong enough belief in something, 
it becomes true. And so these towns on the edges of the outlands, the, the more they become closer and closer to that, that plane that they're close to, they could eventually just fall off of the outlands and become part of that plane. You know, I remember one of the little Easter eggs in Planescape Torment was if you there was a, like a throwaway response, you know, it was one of those like dialogue responses and you had like four or five options or whatever. There was one sort of dialogue response where you mention some other person or you claim that this is that your name is such and such or whatever. You can mention this person over and over and over again. If you do it enough times, the person becomes real and you can actually like run into them in a bar. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, and because enough people came to believe that this person existed, that the person just came into existence. And that's really, yeah. that's where, and then Sigil is at the center of the Outlands, at the top of an impossible spire, uh, floating in, in a donut shape, in the inside of a donut shape over this spire. Um, and it's sort of, it's interesting because it's, I wouldn't describe, because it's the center, right? So it should be the most neutral of neutral, but that's really the role of the spire. And there's entities that live on the spire that that show up in the adventure, um, but sigil itself isn't really neutral so much as it's so cosmopolitan that everything's in balance. Like there's there's horrible evil and there's great good, and they all sort of live there together, rubbing elbows. Uh, yeah, is that is that a is that a I don't know adequate summary of of, <laughs> of Planescape as it has been. I think so. I think it's also interesting to um, to point out when you were talking about the the belief making things real. It that has been a thing that's been in D and D and specifically D and D fifth edition, but uh, only ever talked about in the uh, when you're talking about deities and gods. Mm. Um, that deities divine their power from worship. That you you got Kuatoa who can literally worship a being into existence right. because they worship hard enough so i think sigil and planescape are probably the first time fifth edition players are encountering that idea tied to a place tied to oh you know if we're this town that's near the beastlands and we're not super careful about the things we do we just become part of the beastlands mm -hmm. um and then yeah you've got i i think the spire being the the home of the true neutral or the true nothing or whatever right. um i think the way that sigil ends up working as this everything kind of coexists is because there is the ultimate authority of the lady of pain right. that is very intentionally nobody knows very much about and there is that overarching fear that's just in the back of everybody's mind of mm -hmm. like, we don't actually know what the lady wants. We don't actually know when she's going to show up and just smote people and not right. explain anything. Cause she never does. And yeah, her, her, um, the, the people who are administer to Sigil keep the, the relative piece, but like in the end, Sigil belongs to this enigmatic all-powerful creature mm -hmm. that you just kind of have to not get on the wrong side of. And I think that's some of the edginess that can be forgotten about because Sigil is so cosmopolitan and everything that everybody in Sigil and just in the back of their head is always aware that at any point the lady can just show up and maze you. And, and so you best I mean, kind of not do anything that you think would piss her off. Right. And honestly, <laughs> 
if she may if you do something to piss her off and she mazes you, which means putting you into an extra dimensional maze that may or may not be solvable to, to the point that you can get out of it, you might just be there forever. Yeah. Um, honestly, that, if, that, if that you're is, playing a character that has a negative intelligence, then right. you never get out of there. But right. I speak from experience. Uh, and honestly, that's if she's being generous because she doesn't mm-hmm. even have to maze you. She could just end your existence, right? Yeah. Uh, th- th- this is an entity that successfully bars the gods and you know demon lords and and deities do not mess with the lady of pain and at least not within the the confines of sigil um and so yeah and and she's incredibly enigmatic she runs around in a mask that's sort of wreathed in a halo of blades right um and, and so you can't see her face like facial expressions we say her because she has a vaguely feminine sort of uh outward appearance but she doesn't speak either. Like, you know, she just floats around the city every now and then and leave her alone. <laughs> is, yep. is, and, and, and what's what's really, there's an interesting juxtaposition. And this is true of Planescape at its core for me in that it is dangerous and it is mysterious. And the lady represents that. And mm-hmm. then the only entities that work for her, the Dabas, are kind of silly. Speak in winding, windings. They, yeah, they, they, they they speak in windings. They they do. Uh, 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 what are those things called? Where the, the, with the where you shoot? What is the the way they speak? They have the symbols. What is it called? Yeah, emojis. It just, well, oh no, yeah, but it had a name back in the back in the day before it was emojis. Oh. Uh, to, to that be, I don't uh, remember. Uh, 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 a rebus. Is that a thing? Oh, I, I think I know what you're talking about, but it's I'm, I'm blue screening on it. I I think once again, modern audiences wingdings. Yes, but now I gotta know. I'm pretty sure but now you gotta know. I'm pretty sure if you go back in the day, yeah, it's a rebus. If you go back in the day, they, they of course they didn't talk about it as emojis or wingdings or whatever. They talked about it as a rebus mm-hmm. um, in all the books. So, a cool. see, so, now I'm gonna pull it up in this book and see. But what but does that, it actually say? But that's silly. Right. And that's a little bit of of the juxtaposition that is Planescape in that it's it's deadly and mysterious and enigmatic and serious. And also because there's so much variety in the planes, you occasionally run into something that's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what yep. and and that's one of the things that makes Planescape work is that like you're scared and it's dangerous but an encounter isn't necessarily a combat encounter where you're going to die. It could just be there's this weird philosopher elephant who's walking around and wants to discuss politics with you, you know, whatever, uh, you know, and, and all of those things are possible. Yeah. Do we want to talk about death in the adventure? Should we? Should we oh, shall we dive we, in? Should we dive into the adventure? So, so there are there are yeah. three, there's three books, uh, Mort's Planner Parade, Sigil in the Outlands, and then the Adventure, which is Turn of Fortune's Wheel. Uh, and I think it's worth mentioning briefly the the other things, uh, but we may spend most of our time talking about the um, the Adventure. I suspect. Um, so Mort's Planner Parade is a monster book. It brings in a bunch of monsters. Most of them are carryovers from old monsters. Tracy had thoughts on the monsters in that you f- you feel some fourth edition in the monsters. Yeah, and I'm trying to remember exactly because I know I wrote that. Um, I think it had to do with the influences section. 
So they added the um there's some traits that they can add in which uh was I know we've done it lots in 5e but was 4th edition e in terms of the how we flavored some of the the very common stat blocks. But the the thing that stuck out to me about it was it felt like there was a lot more keying into conditions or um, opportunity attack type stuff and then um, things that had to deal with uh, distance so you can still do it it's it's based on feet instead of squares and all that stuff you can do it without a, a map or, or, or physical representation but I think it's still going to be a little harder um, compared to you know early on in earlier with fifth edition um, where they, they tried to really make it be a, something that could be completely theater of the mind. I agree. I also, I, I kind of like that the, the planescape creatures lean into all of the weird and wonky stuff. And I like it for two reasons. Yeah. One, I want my battles to be way more interesting than a bag of hit points. Mm-hmm. That's all I want. I just want, you know, sometimes it's good to just throw a bag of hit points at your players, but every once in a while, you kind of want something that's yeah. going to challenge them in different ways. And, and, as, not as just, a, you know, hit point race. As a DM who's uh, approaching the end of Descent into Avernus, um, th- I've started swapping out all of the demons and devils with things from third-party books just because so many of the monsters are uh, repetitive and after you fought your your 15th bearded devil then it sort of becomes a bag of hit points that can sometimes swing a glaive at you right and and I'm looking yeah. for for other stat blocks that do interesting things um, yeah and so I like the leaning into that I also get the we don't want to overcomplicate it thing because I go, you know, I go back to third edition. I go back to some of the third party publishers for fifth edition that published a lot of third edition and they're still doing third edition level of complexity. And it's like, look, I don't need the monster's entire spell book for this two minute encounter. And I don't want to have to look yeah. up all those spells. Like, get, give, you know, get, so give me, there's a sweet spot uh, of give me some options that are interesting, but stop making me look everything up all the time and, and slowing a, a combat down. So yeah, uh, I like the, I the like other thing. That. That, Go ahead. The other thing that I found about some of these traits is that they can be really swingy. Mm-hmm. It's like, like the Arcadia trait where once per day can just decide that uh, if it fails a certain type of saving throw, it succeeds. Like just does. <laughs> Which is the thing we're used to seeing in legendary creatures that can just decide to make saves, but not just for every yeah. creature from Arcadia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and it's just, it makes combat, I think, more interesting, even if it is a little more complex, especially for those of us who like to run theater of the mind. Um, it, does, it, does, it does take a little bit more note-taking, I think, mm. because of all of the extra things that can be happening and all the extra... Um, conditions and 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 things but I, I i still would rather have that than the vega hit points um like even some of the more ridiculous creatures that it's like you like the time dragon and i admit i'm not necessarily a time travel person a time travel fan but like the time dragon does some wonky stuff and like many of these creatures are not necessarily they have stat blocks because you might fight them, but 
they're not necessarily an in, like you were talking about earlier an encounter you would fight like honestly if you encounter a time dragon fighting is kind of the last thing you want right. to do with the thing because it can just uh it can just take you places and times and uh you can just end up desynchronized from the time stream um and i find those kind of powers way more interesting in a storytelling standpoint than in an encounter standpoint which you know that's we're at the point in where there's so many monster manuals or so many monsters just in the fifth edition pantheon without going to all these amazing third parties that yeah you got to give a bunch of these creatures weird and wonky things Mm -hmm. so that you can you could build an entire part of a campaign around stuff right one of my favorite um and i'm going to get into those uh third-party publishers but early in fifth edition cobalt press put out one of their monster books they've had yep they got tome of tome of beasts i got a bunch of them right there it was was either tome of beasts or tome of beasts 2 um although it might have been creature codex because i think that was actually the second one not not tome of beasts 2 in any case Mm. Um, it, in one of those early ones, they had something, and I think it was called like a fate eater or something like that, that would like change the strands of an entity's fate. And mm-hmm. there was like a, a roll of a D6 and a random thing happens to him sort of thing. But man, did that become an interesting story beat for me. That was a narrative driver ability, not uh, a combat encounter. Like, sure, you fought the thing and it did the 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 other, you know, the random stuff when it when it hit people or whatever but also the first thing it did was jump on a player's chest and change their backstory uh because yeah and, and ultimately this was this was a player who like kind of did regretted some of their class choices and wanted to play a different class okay great this thing attacks you and completely rewrites your backstory now who are you and let's make yeah. that part of the narrative right and and those kinds of things are a lot of fun i don't want it in all of my monsters, like you talked about, like I need things to fight, but also I need some monsters that you may tussle with, but are going to drive story with the weird things they can do. Uh, I also find in, in this book, uh, in the, the parade in Mort's planner parade, the, the monster book that, I don't know, it seems just, just flipping through it again. It feels like 50% of the, the stat blocks in there are specifically in service to the adventure. Yeah. Well, and I think that ties into something that you had brought up that I wanted to expand upon, which is, um, all right, so you have this player who wanted to change stuff about their their backstory, their class mm-hmm. or whatever, and so now you built this encounter to make that happen. Right. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd alluded at the beginning when we started talking about Turner Fortune's Wheel that, it, in my opinion... Whether whatever you think about the adventure, this is not necessarily an adventure you want to just spring on your players. Mm-hmm. D- depending on the players, you don't necessarily want to surprise them with what's about to happen. And they talk about it in the adventure. And I think a lot of these creatures are the same way. I think if you're going to uh, attack someone with a creature that can change their fate, that can change their backstory, then either that needs to be a discussion ahead of time, or it needs to be the kind of thing that the players can reverse. And so some of the creatures, you might have to come up with a narrative reason that it can be reversed because 
there are some things, you know, it, it's one thing to hit a player until they're dead. It's another to be like, and now you are a completely different lineage, right. you know, and now you, you know, th- that kind of thing. I think it's more fun when the players are into it and you never quite know, especially when it's something as integral as say their backstory. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, and that's where like the time dragon comes in. Right. And there's some of these. So, so yeah, there's some of these things in this monster book that feel essential Planescape and it would have been doing Planescape a disservice if they weren't, if they weren't there. Right. The, yeah. the, the razor vine stuff and um, the, the, um, the Archons or Archons or however you want to pronounce it. The, the, um, some of those kinds of things are, are crucial to uh, the, even Varghuls are a thing that have been around in Planescape for some time. And even as though they're kind of weird and wacky and whatever, um, but like some of them are, I don't know, time dragons are cool, but I also don't like think of them as essential planescape creatures. You know, I, I wouldn't have thought if I was going to populate, a, uh, if I was going to make the monster book for planescape and I was like, okay, let's think about our second edition days. What are the things that absolutely have to be in here? Time dragons wouldn't have been on the list. And yet they're kind of neat. And yeah. they play a role in the adventure. And I feel like there's several things that they either created whole cloth um, or were more obscure from second edition that they brought in because they use them in the adventure and they want to support the adventure. Well, and the adventure does a thing that is both, I think, smart and also difficult. And I guess at this point, we probably are getting into a little bit of spoilers I mean, for the adventure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. The warning for those listening. Um Turn of Fortune's Wheel has an overarching adventure that your your players are going on, but it is also a tour of the Outlands. It is very intentionally a let's go to all the places and see all the things. At least, and at least so part I think, two is. Yeah, definitely, definitely part two. Part one is um, let's explore Sigil, and then part two is now let's go all over the Outlands. Yeah, and I think because... You know, who knows chicken and egg? What came first? Did they come up with a whole bunch of monsters and then decide, oh, this makes sense for us to do a tour because we grabbed creatures from all over the the outlands? Or did they know, okay, this is going to include a good chunk in where everybody, all the the adventurers are going to go on a tour of the outlands. So let's make sure there's some unique monsters in each Mm -hmm. of those places. So I think it's smart that they did that because that helps tie everything together you don't you don't end up going to one of the outlands and not at least have something new to throw at your players especially if they've been playing for a while um i don't necessarily think the way the tour of the outlands happens was the best choice because there's definitely a couple places in the adventure and where you go to a place because you've been told to go to the place Mm -hmm. and that especially in this adventure, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of NPCs or or the DM mm-hmm. telling the characters, you need to go here. Why? Because you need to go here because that's where the next thing is. Right. So I think that is I, one of the one of the weaknesses of this adventure. I have I yes, I have thoughts that align with that in regards to the adventure. Do we want to talk about Sigil in the Outlands, the 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 setting book uh, in the collection a little bit too? 
to be honest, that I really like. But I'm also the kind of I'm the kind of DM who I want a setting book that doesn't necessarily give like three billion details on everything. I like that it is. Did it leave stuff, quote unquote, out from previous editions? Absolutely. It has to. There were 17 books. <laughs> there were 17 books. And and let's be honest, not everything from previous editions was A, good, or B, uh, salvageable. Uh, there there was stuff in there that is best left in the past. It was all brilliant. Be- <laughs> <laughs> Every word is gold. Everything. Everything. <laughs> keep it all. Keep it all. Um, and so I, I appreciate the, the culling. I also appreciate, uh, as, as a DM potentially running stuff in Sigil, it gives me all of the basic information I need to get the, the feel of the, the city down, to get the feel of this place, to get the important people and places and things going on, um, to get some, you know, bonus stuff that my players can latch on to, um, and, and the same for all the Outlands. But it doesn't try to be the a book. It doesn't try to spell every detail out. Sure. And um, I appreciate that for bunches of oats of different reasons. One of them being this book would be three billion pages long if they tried. Two... I want to be able to throw my own stuff in. And three, if you are the type of DM who has played since third edition, who has played all the, and and knows this location and something has been left out, it's fairly easy to add it back on in from your own knowledge. If they tried to be more specific, but also change things to make it fit within this new version of Sigil, there'd be all sorts of things you have to rewrite. So I, I like it, but I'm also a fan of the Radiant Citadel, which is literally a setting that has one chapter and tells me the basics of everything I need to know. And I'm running an entire campaign based on yes. Radiant Citadel because I will just make all sorts of up and I love it. Right. And I think it's, <laughs> I, if you want to, I don't know. I actually like the setting book pretty thoroughly as well. Um, mm-hmm. It gives you enough interesting locations, like locations in Sigil, that you can do stuff in Sigil. And the Outlands for me and Planescape have never been a location where a campaign takes place. It's a, it is locations that you visit, mm-hmm. but it's too unstable. It's too like weird and varied to really make it make a home base uh, and yeah. make a campaign all about the Outlands, right? You, Sigil is pretty firm and solid. Yeah. Like, it's cosmopolitan and there's a lot of stuff going on and it's weird because of all of that, but it's solid. And it, you could run a whole campaign in Sigil that occasionally pops out to one of the towns in the Outlands or whatever um, and, and does some things there, but you don't really hang out. I don't, So I don't need a ton of detail in the Outlands. Yeah. Um, given that they've decided that this is, it's just going to be a sigil in the outlands and we're not going to talk about the planes. Okay. There's a big gap then for, for people who have only played fifth edition. Cause you don't know about most of the planes unless it's one specific layer of hell mm-hmm. uh, or one specific, or the bits and pieces you get oh, from yeah. the DMG or, and or some one of the other specific books. domain of dread or one specific domain of delight. You know, those, those, yeah. uh, that's all we know about the different planes, unless you have some backstory and some history. Or the um, Feywild. I think Wild Beyond the Witchlight probably... People don't think of Wild Beyond the Witchlight as a setting book because it really isn't. Uh, it is an adventure, but that has so much 
uh, juicy information about the Feywild in it that you can kind of take well, that and run with it. But but your point stands. That, and, and that's the domain of delight that I mentioned. That's because that's what they ended up. Oh, <laughs> so. OK. Uh, they came out recently with that domains of delight uh, supplement. Well, it, it came out around that's... this. It came out around the same time that Witchlight came out. But yeah. Well, they came out with something really oh, recently. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me well, see I if that. I can find it. Uh, do, do, do. Oh, because and, now and this are you is... looking that up? Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Because now this is gonna this is gonna give me because it was the was same there... thing. Oh, go ahead. Because uh, it was the same thing as the um, Spelljammer Adventures and Monsters of the Multiverse, Domains of Delight, a Feywild accessory. Uh, came out, um, I don't have a date, but it looks like it came out just before Fizbins, maybe? Uh, a lot of it, a lot of it is like the, the same thing that they did, except with, um, I think there was a, a, another version of this that was also like the Domains of Dread, which was, all right, here's everything you kind of need to know about this idea of the setting, and now, um... Or no, it was spelled. Was it spelled? Are you looking on on D and D Beyond? Oh yeah. Okay. There oh was, yeah, because that they put was, out a whole bunch of of fun little things. They do. Uh, although I feel like you know, the original, the domains of delight that I was talking about, um, came out on DM's Guild. It's it, oh, looks, okay. it looks like it's the same uh, product. But it was published. I would. In, it was published okay. in two thousand one or twenty twenty one. Um, and it it looks like it's the same products that that it just only recently came to DMs uh D and D Beyond. So that looks yeah, like perhaps that, that it came out several years ago, uh, around the time that Witchlight came out uh, on DMs Guild, and then has finally made it to D and D Beyond. Okay. So yeah. So we're thinking of the same thing, but we in are. different directions. Yep. Yeah. And that's, and that's why I, I called out um, Domains of Delight. Tracy, you wanted to say something. I was just going to say, when I was looking for the script today, I realized, I think it was in 2014, we did an episode on the D&D Classics Planescape PDFs. Yep, we did. And so I, those... And at Sorry, point, I don't remember if it was part of that or separately but i remember doing an interview with monty cook and talking uh, a, a lot about uh planescape it was par- it was part of it yeah. yeah so so i guess the 40 folks could have gotten from dd classics already some of those planescape pdfs and and yeah. know a little bit about it <laughs> yeah no there's, and there's a lot out there and that's one of the things that that there's a lot more detail you could add and there's a lot more mm-hmm. information about the planes you could add but people need to know you're going to have to go on DMs Guild and find those classic PDFs of the old second edition products if you really want to know about the various planes of chaos or, or whatever, right? Uh, there's whole box sets of, of information and the mechanics you'll have to kind of ignore. Um, and, and A little bit, yeah. Well, yeah. They I mean, at least transfer over easier than fourth edition stuff, which sure. once again, I love, but. <laughs> but, but, it, but we're talking second edition uh, and this, uh, the stats don't really translate super well because not super well, but no. they, yeah, <laughs> it, it's about as it's at least as clunky as tra- uh, as translating fourth edition, which at least did a, has a d twenty system where you roll a d twenty and add a number, which was not the case in second. So, 
True, yeah. but go ahead and make a will save. Right. Every once in a while, that comes out of my mouth, and people are like, "Wait, what?" Right, but that's <laughs> not. Oh, a, that wait. Was, but that wasn't even a thing in in second edition. It was it was yeah. make, make a a, a, a was a, a poison save or a petrification save because those yep. were just their own separate things. Anyway, we're getting all kinds of tangents over and, here. Um, I, and one thing about the setting book, and I don't know if maybe I just missed it. I kind of remember this whole idea you were talking about earlier about how lots of things are actually tied to the alignment system and things like that. But I don't feel that came out strongly. And I don't mean it like I actually really like the setting book, too. I know I didn't get a chance to say that yet. But it, it did seem weird to me to see the alignment like everywhere without it being super clear why. Yeah. No. And, and, and it was everywhere and it is everywhere. And it's not spelled out super like honestly like they they dive they spend a considerable amount of time diving into the factions mm -hmm. uh, of sigil and yet those those factions were the driving force of 80 percent of the adventures i ever ran in in second edition planescape um and they're not that crucial here um, they're a little bit like, uh, again, having uh, being being very familiar at the moment with Descent into Avernus, it's a little bit like the Cult of the Dead Three. Like the, when they're important, they're crucial, and then they get completely ignored and forgotten about for the other eighty percent of the story, right? Um, and so, yeah, the factions were were one of the things that were really interesting about Planescape because they represented these philosophies, that power of belief, and they and they had really strong philosophies. Now there is a there is bits about like things that you can do to make characters that are members of the different factions or whatever. And if you did that as you're running a, a campaign or the, the adventure, then the, the, the factions are going to become more important in your story. Right. But they're not that integral to what's actually happening in the story of the adventure. Um, no, I think a lot of the outlands get described not as a alignment, but yes. as a uh, a philosophy. Yeah. Um, which, when you hear the philosophy, you can definitely drop an alignment on there. Um, I don't mind that, but I've also been one who's been okay with moving away from alignment because then you just there's too many of those arguments about what each alignment actually means. Sure. Uh, whereas, like, I was just looking through the outlands and I got to fortitude. Which literally, the very first sentence is, Fortitude is a place of ordered beauty. Like, all right, lawful neutral, lawful, you know, it's lawful something, but, yeah. you know. So, like, it gives you it gives you that framework of this is the feel of this place. This is the structure of this place without tying it into uh, an alignment so much. But as you go in, it talks about, mm -hmm. you know, townsfolk fixate on flaws in themselves and in their surroundings, believing that abnormality is the precursor to evil. So I think it just is, it's baked into a lot of the... Mm -hmm the description of the places, but it's not a, a hard and fast rule. Right. And honestly, one of the things that was fun for teenage me playing second edition Planescape was the fact that yes, alignment leads to those really nitpicky geeky sort of arguments, debates, whatever that, that you get into uh, at that age. Yeah. But, but Planescape just sort of leaned into that and Planescape sort of said, yeah, and all of those debates are happening on in the Outlands too. Like uh, people are arguing about whether or not this is lawful or that's lawful and whatever. And there's wars about it. Like it's you know, you know um, yeah. 
it's it's they just sort of leaned right into it. So the other thing that I wanted to mention with the setting book is that second edition Planescape had a bunch of mechanics to it that described what happened when you moved from one plane to another plane and mm-hmm. the fact that magic changed its functionality. Uh, you know, if you had a plus one sword from the prime that was forged in the prime world and took it to another plane of existence, it would be it would either become more magical or less magical depending on where you go and where its original sort of uh, creation was from. And that was true of every single item, all of the spells, the different spell. Ca- there was a there was a whole slew of like what happens when you move from one plane to another plane, uh, and they've they've just sort of ignored the fact that any of that existed. And honestly, I also ignored the fact that all of those rules existed back in second edition because it was just too much. <laughs> I really have to keep, I really have to keep track of the impact. Like there's so much bookkeeping. I, I've got 15 different magic items by the time I get to 15th level. I got to keep track of where all of them are from and how each one changes as I as, because I step through a portal for for half an hour of this adventure and then i'm going like no that's just too much of a pain in the ass so a lot it's a lot of bookkeeping absolutely yeah Yeah. so so i don't hate that they did away with that there was part of me that kind of wanted to see them take a fifth edition approach to like how do we honor that the existence of all of those rules and that's the way things used to work and they didn't try that they just did what we did in second edition because it was too much we just ignored it um Mm -hmm. But I would have. It would have been fun to see if they could sort of make an homage to like that with something, you know. But they did. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that just probably had to be left behind when you only have so many pages because it's a three book set. Right. So are we? Ready All right. To, I mean, we are. We are fifty four minutes into this recording. Are we ready to actually just talk about the adventure that we've okay. been, we've been sideways talking about for an hour? So, okay, so I'll dive right in. Here you go. Here you go. If you're going to run this adventure, and this may not be for every DM, here is my uh, here is my suggestion. Tell, talk to your players before they make characters about what this adventure is and tell them about the glitch that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who haven't read the adventure and don't mind being spoiled, the, the TLDR is something has gone wrong in the multiverse. And now people, when they, when people die, instead of their soul going off to wherever they're supposed to go off to, they instead get sucked back into a different version of themselves from a different multiverse. And they and don't not, necessarily remember who they are. Right. And, and it's not all people, but it's all of the characters. It's all uh, the characters. True. So, so it, 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 it's interesting because they... They imply because of that that this is going to be a super deadly adventure, and you're going to be able you're going to swap back and forth between this character, this version of the character, and that version of the character, whatever. There are certainly moments, especially early on in the adventure, that I'm like, okay, you can have a you can have a TPK with a bad role in this situation, right? I'm thinking yeah. about the, the mortuary. Um, oh yeah, and, and the zombie. Um, so you could you could have a TPK with with one bad role in one instance and it's not the end of the adventure. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine, but I don't find, I don't know. I didn't do a really careful, you know, calculation here, but I didn't find the rest of the adventure 
felt particularly deadly to me. Like it feels like the glitch thing may came up come up a little bit, but ninety well, percent of the time it's not gonna be an issue in my campaign. I'm not sure if they intended the campaign like the the encounters or the this the the adventure itself to be what uh kills the characters as much as like they might decide to do wacky stuff and intentionally um because there's a lot this is not a serious people's campaign this is not if you need your serious dnd this is not where you're going to get it from you can get bits and pieces but no overall it should be a very very much a a high adventure kind of campaign a a very swashbuckler kind of thing that was a thing too is that at least by the time you get to part two it it leans heavily into the wacky weird and loses sort of the dangerous edge of planescape other than a few other than a few locations you know, there's some uh, gate towns that you go to or whatever where the, you got some of that that dangerous edge. But, man, a lot of it feels more wacky. <laughs> it's definitely more wacky. wacky. Yeah, I I don't necessarily agree that it's not deadly because, like you said, parties do wacky, wacky things. Uh, also, it's very party dependent, you know, some sure. of the some of these encounters and. You know, especially at the lower levels, it's always dependent. I think what this this um, story beat allows is, and while I wouldn't recommend new DMs starting with this adventure, I think new DMs, you start with like a one shot, you start with something smaller. But I think the good thing about that being baked in is it gives the DM and the players license to not be as worried about death as you would be in a normal, more normal campaign um, because it it can still be an accident and then it can still be part of the story. Your, mm-hmm. your, your DM doesn't have to come up with, okay, wait, how does your character get back into the adventure? How do you not just lose everything? How do you, you know, it's kind of all baked in, um, which is one of the reasons that I highly recommend talk spoil that bit of the adventure for your players right away because it will be more fun in the long term because they can plan for stuff and also so that they don't craft a character with 300 pages of backstory that they're super excited to dive into that you know if they get the wrong idea that this is going to be an adventure that is going to tie into you know their backstory or whatever it's not and so you set the players up to make characters that can be successful and then and then they can yeah. be in the adventure. And I know that there's been some people who are like, but then it loses that that, you know, moment right at the beginning, which is a surprise. Yeah. But you know what you get? You lose one moment in episode one in, in show one in game one. You lose one moment of surprise, but then you get an entire campaign of way more joy. Because people know what they're going into and they're prepared yeah. for that. Tracy, you had something. Yep. I, I I thought I read it. It it said to create the characters up, multiple characters up front. There was, it so offers there, it offers two approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. One approach is tell them up front, and everybody just make three characters. And the other approach was wait until the first time somebody dies, and then tell all of them about it, and have them make make the their extra backup characters right. And I th- and yeah. I think at the very least. 
Lauren, you're right, that you have to let them at least know everybody's going into this campaign. Everybody's character doesn't remember their own past. So don't bother writing that backstory. Don't bother investing because that's going to be a waste of everybody's time. Um. Or, yeah. You know what? I'm I'm even okay with it being a waste of people's time because if you if you go into this with the idea of like, oh, this might be the first campaign that I'm playing this character and maybe I'll play this campaign in, in a homebrew after this and where we can deal with all the backstory stuff. But it it does blunt that moment of, you know, I, I don't know what I'm getting into anymore. Right. Um, I, I would even be tempted to I don't know. Maybe there's a compromise. Because because I I am a DM who likes those moments right and and so I mm-hmm. get it, but I also recognize that like if I keep too much in my pocket, then I go in with one expectation and the players go in with another expectation and then the surprise moment for them is like oh this is not the game I thought I was playing right and yep. then you've lost the fun for the whole campaign it's just a drudgery, uh, mm-hmm. but I wonder if you couldn't open with okay. Don't invest in your backstory because you don't remember it. In fact, don't create any backstory because you don't remember it. And I don't want you to metagame who who you think you are and whatever, right? Um, but also, go ahead and make three versions of your character. And I'm not going to tell you why. But I think at that point, maybe you start to set some expectations that things may not be as permanent. Uh, because, you know... Why else would I be, you know, and there's a mystery there to solve and then it gets yeah. solved the first time somebody, maybe that's an approach. I don't know. I'd have to run this four or five times and do it different ways to figure out which one I like, but. Well, I haven't, cause like, I was just going to say the hard part I see right away, having not run this at all is with the idea of the surprise, because after the encounter, you're, you can then become one of your variants or, 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 or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you if if you have a four hour game night, right. uh, if that's what you typically do, and the first hour you have your first death, then what are you gonna do? Right, you're gonna have somebody try to quickly roll up an, another uh, their glitch characters, or or maybe you stop the whole game and then everyone rolls. That's when they do their glitch characters. Is then, but I don't think that's what most people want to spend no. that four hour block I, to do. I had, I had the exact same thought of like, oh my gosh, what happens? You like. You get half you let's say we're having a four hour session and, and we get three hours into it and somebody dies. Yeah. I don't want to stop my session an hour early, but an hour is that enough time for everybody to make two new characters? I I don't know. I, so okay. I have a I have at least uh, a suggestion. I think everyone's mileage is gonna vary. Um I think what you do is you if, if you want to run this without telling the players exactly what's going to happen, but you want to at least prepare them for the tone of the campaign and for what to expect, you tell them at the beginning to create two characters, one that they intend to be expendable. Tell them that the first session is going to include basically like a historical moment. You know, you're going to be... Anyone who's seen the Vox Machina um, animated series, like that first five minutes of the very first episode, so no spoilers on anything, is you're following this group of heroes as they fail miserably to do a thing, and then you switch over to Vox Machina. Right. So you you tell your players, make two characters. One that's like 
fun and funny, one that maybe is like, oh, one that you've wanted to try out some mechanics for a while or you know, don't bother with backstory. Don't bother with anything. And a second one that maybe you're slightly more invested in, but also don't worry about backstory. Don't worry about any of that. And then the first game you run, and this requires a little more work on the DM's part because the adventure starts with your characters waking up, having already died, and becoming one of these glitches. Mm -hmm. So what I suggest, though, for people who want to keep the surprise but still want to get across the tone, the first session is basically the prequel. Basically, what is the thing that led up to your character's death? And so you can make them at any level that you want. You can make you can do basically anything you want as long as it ends in a TPK. And then you tell people, all right, put those away. Go grab your second sheets. And now you start to describe the beginning of the adventure. Sure. And so now players haven't necessarily lost anything that they want to be invested in, but now have been surprised enough about, oh, wait, not only am I playing this new character, which I kind of expected... I'm actually also playing the old character. Like, both are kind of happening. And then from there, you can tell people, hey, just have another character in your back pocket. Um, I think the other thing you can do, depending on how invested your players are in their characters, is um, all of the glitches have a nexus feature that is supposed to help indicate that, yes, this is the same soul even if they don't remember their past and they don't remember anything, mm -hmm. um, whether it's a physical feature, whether it's a um, a mental feature, whatever that is. And so leaning into that, if you've got players who are like, this adventure sounds like a lot of fun and I'm totally okay with my character dying and coming back as one of these incarnations. I don't know if I want to lose everything every time or some things every time like it talks in the game it talks in the adventure about how hey this the second time you die in the in the adventure the character should probably come back with at least the memories starting from the beginning of the adventure right. just to make life easier well who's to say that every time that happens not only do you come back with the memories from the beginning of the adventure but maybe you also remember like the month before maybe you also remember your parents maybe you also maybe every time this happens it gets more complicated, but also you get a little bit more back. Right. And so that can encourage players to not be afraid of losing all of their progress in a role-playing standpoint. Right. And then at the end, you, you get to present them with everybody and be like, hey, who do you want to be? Um, I think in a way, this is an excellent adventure for new players, not just a D&D, &D, but... To, not just a tabletop, but to D and D in specific, because their characters don't need to know anything right. about the world, and so the players don't have to do any prep. All they need to know ahead of time is make these two characters. One of them is going to immediately die in, in session one, and then you're going to play the other one for a while, and then you can still have that surprise. And then now they can ask all of those questions. Um, or if you've got like a mixed group, if you've got like two or three people who are brand new D&D, &D, they have no idea. Uh, is it Sigil? Is it Sigil? Is it a signal? What is this? You know, who is the Lady of Pain? What's this? Who is that? You got a couple players who maybe have been playing since second edition and know all of these things, but now are playing a character that knows nothing. Now everybody can kind of be on the same page. And I think that's super cool. No, I agree. I, and, I talked a lot. Sorry. Yeah. And, and I, <laughs> I, I, I think that's part of like, 
it's a it's an opportunity even for those players who have I'm thinking about my group because of course I am right and, and mm-hmm. I have players who are very much invested in the backstory and their characters and they they you know my current campaign they already had the their concepts ready to go like halfway through the last campaign you know years ago um and and so they're really invested into that kind of thing and it's it's a little bit of a chance to to encourage them to be like hey let's go ahead and step out of your normal way of playing D&D and step into the way your the min-maxer player plays just think mm-hmm. about the mechanics what mechanics do you want to play with cuz you don't have a backstory yeah. so so don't even waste time and energy on that that's non-existent um yeah. you know uh and and it, that that may turn some people off, although it feels very much like an homage to uh, Planescape Torment, the video game, because that's the the story of that character. He wakes up in the morgue, he doesn't yep. remember anything, and he runs into a talking skull named Mort, which yep. is all of the that. That's exactly how this adventure starts. You wake up in the morgue, you have no memory, and there's Mort who kind of fills you in on stuff. Yeah. Um. So yeah, Tracy. Oh, and then the other thing I was going to say is that I think it's it felt like it would be really good for people who haven't learned how to play boldly yet mm-hmm. um, in terms of being willing to 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 do those story things that are kind of cool and fun and being so tied to their character. Not that it's it's bad necessarily, but if you want to learn how to 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 do that sort of thing and be willing to just go with it and for the DMs to learn to the yes and type stuff or yes, mm-hmm. but um, I think it's really good for that. Yep. Absolutely. hundred percent. I other- have one other suggestion Okay. Uh, for the group that uh, wants to play this, but are also backstory dependent. You can change. Here's my suggestion is you change how the glitches work in where you still come back with all your memories. So you don't lose your backstory. You don't lose all of that information. Your physical form is just different. It, and make it completely different. I was a dragonborn and now I'm a halfling. I was a rogue and now I'm a sorcerer, that kind of thing. Right. And so they can still play with some of those mechanics of like, oh, I know that I'm if I die, it I can I can be more bold because I'm gonna come back. The price I'll have to pay is I'm suddenly gonna have to learn how to be a new pers a new physical person. But you let them right. keep their memories and then what happens is Maybe they start at the beginning, you know, all gung-ho about let's fix this so that we can get back to who we were. And some of those characters by the end are going to be like, yep, I want to go back to who I was. That's been my goal this entire time. Some of them are going to go through two or three incarnations and get to the end and go, you know, I was a halfling rogue. I, I... Something about being an elven sorcerer really spoke to me. And so maybe that's the physical form I'm now going to go with. Right. So you you can alter the way that that kind of stuff works. If you've got a party of people who, you know, they really want to have a backstory. They really want to have, you know, all of that depth and stuff. You you can make those kinds of changes and still keep the the feel and the fun of the adventure without losing out on, you know, hey, I want to be able to talk about my parents. Right. You know, I want to be able to talk about my tragic backstory. <laughs> and then if you're the type of DM that wants to go hog wild, now you take their backstory and you weave it into some of the Outlands stuff, and now you have a better reason to go to some of the Outlands, which 
is my one complaint about this adventure mm -hmm. is some of the reasons to go to those outlands are pretty I, weak. I want to talk about that in a second. But first, the other reason I think this is an adventure that makes it interesting for introducing people to the game is the level spread. Um, you get because mm -hmm. it starts at level three and it goes all the way to level 17. It is probably as a campaign, it is probably the highest level other than maybe uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage, it is the highest level that characters get through the course of a campaign. Um, I think so, but you also have to remember, don't you skip a bunch of levels? You skip like six levels, yes. Yeah. No, and that's, yeah. How, that's how they got the, but, but even before that, it's a fast leveling game. Like mm -hmm. it, chapter one, uh, this first part is broken up into three chapters and you like, you finish, you know, the first chapter is like getting out of the morgue and you gain a level. And then at one point you go to the casino. It is, it seems entirely feasible to me that you're in the casino and there is not a single combat encounter in the entire thing. And then when you leave the casino, you gain a level. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and so it feels like, and then, and then you get to part two where you're running all over the outlands and there's seven places to visit. And like every two places you visit, you gain a level. And most of those places are have things going on that you could probably do in one session. And so they're yeah. all just sort of a series of one shots in different parts of the outlands. Uh, and you can throw in all these different random encounters and slow things down or whatever. But at best, you're probably looking at a two to four shot. Uh, before you level up two to four sessions before you level up and that's at like relatively high levels mm -hmm. uh, and so it 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 does it le as a campaign it levels fast and then you get to the end and they're like oh and here's all your memories back go ahead and, and level up six times to 17th level <laughs> right uh, yeah and yeah and and so that, and not just that, level up to 17th level and pick which which of your incarnations you want to yes. be. Which so if you pick one? the one at third level, suddenly you're really doing third to 17. That well, could be a whole session of itself. And, and, and the way they've originally conceived of the, the glitches is that you have three and you mm -hmm. just keep swapping. So you might have died at third level and then gone to another one and then died again and come back to the same one. That's at, true. You know, so you may be jumping around depending on how you play things. Um, yeah. so, but, but I, 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 I did this a little bit. Somebody else, I got to take a break as a DM and somebody else ran, ran a campaign, a mini campaign for us in fourth edition when dark sun came out and they ran mm -hmm. the dark sun campaign, but they did it in like each session we jumped up five levels. So we kind of got to experience a breadth of dark sun from level one to, to 30, because it was fourth edition, we went to 30, right? Yeah, I was um, about to say, there's way more to go through in fourth, yeah. Within, within a handful of sessions, we got to see the breadth of these characters and, and watch them grow, and, and I actually really liked that. And so I yeah. like the idea that this adventure allows you to sort of see the breadth of a character and level up fast, um, and, and, and that plays well in my head. Mm. That said, let's talk about the way the different parts are set up, because I really like part one, I'm fairly indifferent to part two. I, it needs it needs some good reworking, but the but the individual locations in the Outlands are fun and interesting. The individual si situations and scenarios are fun and interesting. Uh, and then I actively dislike part three because I feel like they put a bunch of work into the beginning of it. The the platinum rooms, uh, the sort of the, the, these hidden rooms in in the casino, and then they just kind of abandon you a little bit and say, okay, well, and go ahead and do some other stuff until you're ready to end the campaign. <laughs> it's like, well, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So so part part one I like. Part two feels a little bit like Storm King's Thunder with me, and that there's there's some things there that I like, but I'm not gonna run it as necessarily the way it's there because the story doesn't hold together very well. Um, and part three I just actively dislike because I think it was poorly put together and it doesn't feel like a satisfying conclusion to me. I I totally agree with you on part one and I mostly agree with you in part two. I feel like it, my problem with part two, like I've said, is that if, if your players are uh, story and goal and uh, plot oriented, it can be very easy to lose the plot because a lot of those outlands that you go to are there's there's no real reason why you're going there except that's just the next place you got to go well I once mean, you're there to, to give once you're there a, you can have the fun right and to give people a sense as to why you have a, a mimir which is like these skull repositories of information and and it has information about where the the, the creature is that you're trying to find the entity that you're trying to find uh, who I keep going back and forth as to how I would pronounce that to the players. Would I just call him R-O-4-M or would I just call him Rome? Because clearly that's what they're doing, right? Yeah. Um, but but so it, you need to, to re- reconstitute the memory of this this information device. And the only way to do that is to sort of recharge its information about seven different gate towns that are missing. But that and every means, time you end up in an outland, it's it's not easy to get in and it's not easy to get out. So often the adventure is, all right, we're here. We got the information we need. Now the adventure is, how do we get the hell out of here? Yeah. And, and there's, so fun, there's fun and interesting things going on in those gate towns. They're, they, they're oh, yeah. evocative of the, the planes that they're associated with. I really enjoy them all. But, but like just the repeatedly in what would be months of play and honestly, probably weeks to months of in-game time, mm-hmm. just wandering around, going from city to city, solving each city's little problems for no reason other than I just need to get to this, the, the close to this gate and then leave, um, starts like reading it over and over again, Start started to wear on me and feel like a drudge. I can't imagine running it that way. Like there, there's got to be some better way to get them to go and explore interesting locations. Like Curse of Strahd You're, did it well. There's a bunch of interesting locations. Go and explore what you want. And then most of my players visited most of them because they were interesting, right? But yeah, that's role playing geocaching. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I think for months. I, I, <laughs> I do agree. I feel like, and this is on. Uh, this is adding work to the DM's plate. I feel like if I was running this and was afraid of that kind of hopping fatigue, I would come up with ways and reasons for the players to be able to get back to Sigil. Um, get back there, if if only to have a, a place to, uh, to home, to, to basically call home, um, to be around people that remind them of what this is all about, that kind of thing. Um, and then also the the adventure does this a little bit but encourage a selection of like okay here's they go to all the outlands right one you go to seven let's see one two three four five six seven eight it looks like uh so i would say if i'm worried about my players getting outland fatigue um 
because you can kind of do some of them in uh, in different orders. You can kind of say, okay, sure. you know, you have access to any of these three or something like that. I would probably make it a skill challenge in long term. I'd be like, okay, here's the seven places. You've got to go to four of these seven in order to get enough information in the Mimir to be able to do the thing. Which... Here's some basic information about which the Outlands, which sounds fun, uh, which sounds the most interesting, which have I tied into your backstory? Mm-hmm. You know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with that that middle section. I appreciate what they're trying to do, which mm-hmm. is, hey, let's give you the tour of the Outlands. And I agree that each of the individual places are real, real fun and have neat things going on. Uh, but, yeah, that through line can get lost. I enjoy the end of the adventure a little bit more, but I okay. view that as a as a I view it as just a big dungeon crawl in a weird way, like sure. And that's to me like that. Eventually, you're supposed to go and confront the the creature who is actually responsible for everything, um, and can be the big bad of this campaign, um. But I think when I read it over, I read it not as, oh, it's a return to this casino that you're looking for, like, secret rooms and everything. I'm like, oh, this is now a dungeon. This is now a dungeon crawl, but you're level 17, and you've got all these powers. So go and, like, have the ultimate dungeon crawl. Okay, but the chapter literally says, okay, you get to this point, and then the potential big bad runs away. Teleports -hmm. teleports out. Um, and, And... and will never come back, is not going to risk anything, like, they're done. Okay. But they could come back later, you could hunt them down, you know, have that conclusion, whatever. And there's a there's a section in the chapter that says, and you know, they might go back to the Outlands, they might do all kinds of things, find find some of our anthology books that, that would have appropriate level adventures, and do some of the, like, oh my gosh, if the adventure is so thin... There's, there is some symmetry to the, the the villain is met early on and you don't realize they're the villain until the third act and that's fun. And then there's this whole section of doing this other stuff with, with Modrons um, that doesn't interact with that villain at all. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is really, I don't know, half of what's in that section, in, in that part of the adventure. And it... I don't know. It it seems fun, but it also feels mechanically or not uh, narratively un- not as fulfilling. Um, I wonder if, and once again, this is something that puts that onus on the DMs again. I think if there was a, an epilogue in where the the characters went back out into the Outlands to see the result of the choices that they've made. Because what you're talking about specifically is what they decide to do with that Modron and the information that gets sent. Like, they can skew that in a bunch of different ways depending on what they've done in the Outlands, what they decide to do towards the end. You make a bunch of choices that can really alter the fabric of reality, Mm -hmm. especially in those Outlands, but then it just ends. So you're told hey this is what you've done uh like here we go skewed if if realigning the universe if you go skewed on the modron's return to mechanist the skewed data in the characters mimir causes all modrons across the planes to react differently towards different philosophies of types of beings the multiversal effect of skewed data table summarizes the new behavior of the vast majority of modrons so you can either 
if this is the end, 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 then you're just basically telling the players what has happened or you're describing. But if there was an epilogue and where, hey, they've made this choice and now they're going to go back to the Beastlands to see what their choice has wrought, Uh I think that might have more of an impact. But I think also that might feel hollow for people who want the they want the big bad ending. I have a remix. I, the beginnings of a remix idea for this adventure that I think would would fix a lot of my issues. First okay. of all, part two, the Outlands. Um, you run into RO4M early, you know, first thing in the Outlands. Maybe he's in the walking castle. I don't know. You run into him early and then for whatever reason, you have to visit the different locations in the gate towns in order to resolve the glitch like that's mm-hmm. where you that's where you're fixing the multiversal glitch is by going to all these different plant these different gate towns and there's something there that you have to do and then the last piece that you need is back in sigil and that's where you confront the villain mm. you get your your memories back you do the big level jump whatever and then the epilogue becomes and now we're going back out to the outlands to hunt that villain down and find where they're hiding somewhere in the Outlands. And then we get to also see the after effects of the dis- the choices we've made in that sort of reprise of yeah. the Outlands. That's a remix that I, is not fully fleshed out, but I think could make me happy with the second two-thirds of this adventure. <laughs> that definitely it would give a stronger through line, right? Because if the Mimir is hunting down the uh, Ro- Rome... And you encounter Rome, if the Mimir goes, Rome is there, you go there, you find Rome, and now, essentially, you're having Rome finish the Modra, the Great Modron March. Right. And yes. that's how you're fixing yes. the glitch. Is The yes. glitch started because this one Modron because of... The, 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 yeah. the, the great design uh, got messed up. Is missing because, a piece. Yes. And so now that's why you have to go to all these places because unless he fin- they mm-hmm. it finishes its journey, then you haven't fixed the glitch. So yes. that makes sense. Yep. All right. Good. We fixed it. Watsy, call us up. <laughs> you can you can pay for the rights. Like all things, your mileage may vary. Everybody's got kind of a different way. And yeah, like I'm sure there's some people who read through that. I was just like, yeah, you know, my my players are just curious wanderers and explorers and they don't really need much, much beyond go there to go there and to have some fun. And sure, others but, but are going to po- need. At that point, I would rather not having the, the weak sauce sort of MacGuffin uh, thing to try to remember yeah. why we're why we're supposed to be here. If it was just like mm-hmm. let's go explore and have fun, cool. Let's go explore and have fun. <laughs> you know, let's let's then, let's let's do Outlands A Team where we're just going to run around and help people. I was about to say if you want if you want that, you get rid of part one and part three, and you just do part two, right. and you just right. yeah go 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 be the explorers who are um who are home based out of Sigil, and we're gonna go we're mercenaries going to the Outlands. <laughs> All right. So I think it is time for last thoughts. Any last thoughts on this three book section that people want to talk about? So I really like mine's, it. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Mine's not about the product, but I hope it's okay uh, real quick. It really made yeah. me really miss Randy Walker. 
because mm-hmm. uh, he he really liked the Modrons in particular. He's a, a, a friend of mine and uh, Jeff, and he used to do podcasting with us, and he passed away a few years ago. So just shout out to him for this. Mm-hmm. I think that's sweet. I don't think that's, I think that's very sweet. I really like it, but I am, like I said at the beginning, I'm a fan of this setting in general just because it is so uniquely D&D and it, it, you can still have the feel of that kind of magical medieval adventure without it being the really classic cliche of Faerun, which is a very, it's a trope, at least at this point, of that that Western fantasy. So you can still do that. You can still have the, the mechanics of it, but now be in this wild place that is completely different than any other setting that's out there. And I love that. Yeah, no, I I I enjoyed man so little backstory. My last session, my group was uh we're getting close to the end of Descent into Avernus. And so I mm. wanted I wanted them to go ahead and vote on what our next campaign was going to be and I have a, a menu of eight different options and I'm kind of really interested in all of them for different reasons, right? Uh, yeah. but because I was I had just finished reading part 1 of this adventure Man, that I really wanted to pick this, you know. Uh, and now that I realize how much work I would want to do in part two and three, I'm kind of okay with the fact that they didn't. You know, uh, so out of curiosity, uh, what did they pick? Uh, witch light. Well, I'll be on the witch light. So, um, and, and it, that is because in the middle of our descent into Avernus game, we play tested witch light. We were uh, we are an NDA playtest group for wizards sometimes. Uh, and that was one of the things that we play tested. We did two sessions of Witchlight. Uh, that was the first chapter and the last chapter. It ended in a TPK. And, oh jeez! And yet the feedback was, well, we all died. We might want to. You might want to do something about that. However, these two sessions is the most fun we've had playing Fifth Edition D anD D in the entirety of the game. And so they decided we definitely got to go back and actually do Witchlight beginning to end. So we're doing that. That's awesome. So we'll we'll see how it goes. Uh, but yeah, yeah, so 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 yeah, I was really really hyped for this campaign, and then became less hyped the further I got into it because that mm-hmm. first section is just so good, um, mm-hmm. and then it kind of we've discussed right, it kind of loses the thread a little bit. But but there's some good ideas here floating around too. You know how uh, uh, was it Jason Alexander? Is that his name? Whatever his name is, that does the Alexandrian. Uh, uh, remixes online. He he takes. You know, he used to anyway. Take oh. went to adventures and remix them and re. Uh, yeah, do, I do think so. Stories with him. Call, is that the Alexandrian? Um, I kind of want him to go and, and do that with this mm-hmm. uh, because I think there's a, a lot of potential, but a lot of things that I would want to reimagine. Um, oh yeah. Well, and uh, while my. While we were critical of the lack of a really clear through line in that center section, I think we we all agreed that like each individual outland was yeah. super cool and a lot of fun. And even the adventure that you go on there, whether it has anything to do with the original adventure or not, like that is that's kind of a cool series of one shots right there well, for people and, who want to run. And, and that's actually one of my critiques of that section is that there's a, there's several of those little adventures that you do in that location that are kind of cool that if the players are focused on the through line in that story, they could just completely ignore and never do any of the cool stuff because you don't have to. You just yeah. got to get close to the the portal and then leave. Yep. Uh, uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's 
there's all kinds of things that I would want to tweak in that section, but, and, and in the end, but I think there's a ton of potential and there's a lot of cool stuff here and it's almost worth digging into and seeing if, if it's salvageable, if you will. I don't know. That's, that may be too harsh of a word. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I think salvageable. Yeah. I, I think, I think there's a lot of cool stuff here. I think, um, I think every adventure, every DM is going to look at, and it's, I don't think Watsi's put out a bad adventure. I think Watsi's put out adventures that have varying degrees of things that any specific DM like or don't like or want to change and are easier or harder to adjust. And so I think some of these adventures are easier to manipulate in the way that you want to run them or that your players need. And some of them are harder to do. And I think, I think this for uh, all the good things and all the flaws I think this is probably an easier one to mold and change to fit your to fit your style because the overall tone of this adventure is so wild and can be wacky. That also lends itself to not everything needs to be completely like lock and key. Everything can be a little, you know, some things can just be because they are because it's more fun. That, That said, this says probably a lot about me as a DM. One of the things that drives me crazy, uh, and, and so in the thread of that, there haven't been any bad adventures, but there have been things that appeal to DMs differently, right? One of yeah. the things that drives me nuts is when there's not a strong through line, a narrative through line, and a satisfying conclusion. Mm. Uh, those things have I have discovered through the course of fifth edition adventures has become very important to me. Um, and, and to the point the, to the point that I absolutely adore Curse of Strahd and it is one of the best adventures and the ending isn't satisfying because it just sort of goes back to the way it was before the adventure instead of actually doing anything to make the world a better place, which is part and parcel with the horror setting and all that, right? It makes sense. Yeah. But I had to do a whole third act afterwards so that we could have a satisfying conclusion. So, um, I... 100% respect that opinion and I think that's actually a better thing for people to think about like I think that's that's probably the the better way to go into most of these adventures especially yeah. for newer DMs is like hey have these strong endings that being said the more and more I DM the more I don't care about how wishy-washy the ending is because uh I very rarely run any adventure mm. and stick to what's going on oh. and i i make up stuff on the fly i add in things all over the place and i it, and some of it is for my own fun some of it is to yes and the players some of it is just things i just don't even want to have to deal with some of mm-hmm. you know whatever the reason is i i on a regular basis in game even my own homebrew adventures and we're all you know, here's the bullet points and here's all the steps and here's everything yeah. that's going on. And then we'll get into the game and something will happen. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm just going to change this done. And so having an adv- uh, so the ending is the least important thing to me mm. because chances are wherever we're going to end up is not where the adventure was going to go. <laughs> sure. And, 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 and but I de- I that's me. I definitely have games that don't go where you expect them to go. That said, I've discovered over the last 10 years or so about myself as a DM is that I start campaigns at the end. Every time I design a campaign or a story in my head, I know where it ends first. Mm-hmm. And then, and I have, and I may have a sense of where it begins and all the stuff in the middle, I have no idea. And I'm making it up as I go. 
right? Yeah. But but having that end in mind first informs me as a DM, okay, what are the themes of the game? Where's yeah. what what is the direction this is going? And even if the end changes, it still gives me that target and I know I can create that consistent narrative thread. Um, yeah. and that I've discovered that's become important to me, um, over the last that 10 makes years. Sense. So, uh, but yeah, yeah. As a side thing, uh, because I so rarely run pre-written adventures as is, uh, it, it's very, very rare. Um, even right now, the, the campaign that I'm running for my podcast, while it's set in the Radiant Citadel and we're going to all the different places, I'm not running any of the sure. adventures that are in the Radiant Citadel, even though they're brilliant. And I have, um, the most terrifying games i've ever run especially as um as performance as streams are the ones in where i am intentionally trying to run the adventure quote unquote as is that's those that's what makes me the most nervous because i'm constantly afraid that because my inclination (laughs) is to well not just go off book but to either make up something or do something in the moment that is going to propel things, but is now contradictory to something that I'm right. supposed to be doing. So yeah, that's, that's, yep. those are the moments that terrify me the most. Yep. When you, when you've <laughs> DM'd for 35 years, you, you've, you've played a lot of different ways, right? And, and they're exactly all, as long as you're having fun, they're all valid. So absolutely. hundred percent. All right. Can we go ahead and end the episode? We, Lauren, you and you and I, we talked about it before the recording that it has been since pre-pandemic times that we've been on a recording together. But I've discovered that you and I are, are prone to tangents and a chicken walking. So D and D people talking about the joys of D and D, wanting to talk about it for a long time and get on tangents. Nah, us. Nah. All right, we're going to end the episode there then. Uh, I want to thank uh, Lauren for joining us. Lauren, where can people go on the internet if they want to learn more about what Lauren Urban is up to? Well, thank you for having me. This is super fun. Thank you for listening to me ramble all about, especially Fortune's uh, Fortune's Wheel. You can find me, best place is just go to my website, lauren-urban.com. Uh, and any of the socials that I'm actually active in will be linked there. And then on the front page, I've been keeping my front page um updated with like the three things i am most excited about happening in my ttrpg career so if you don't want to have to deal with social media you can just go to my website if you are looking for me i am on twitter and blue sky but you know the social media landscape is a thing so uh, lauren-urban.com very good i also want to thank everybody who supports the show by being patrons uh you can do that as well by going to patreon.com slash the tome show Cool. If you'd like to contact us, you can send us email, thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can find uh, me on social media, Sarah Darkmagic, that's Sarah with an H, on Blue Sky, Twitter, Instagram, probably some other ones. You can find Jeff as Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H, on Mastodon, Blue Sky, Twitter, maybe elsewhere. Uh, We have the Discord, uh, Facebook, a bunch of other places that you can find us as well. We're all over the place. Anyway. Even places we've forgotten to be. Even some places. Yeah. I mean, I'm on all those places, but I don't check most of them very often anymore. If I get a mention, I'll at least log in and see what's going on and see if there's good conversations. But luckily, I did that with Blue Sky, uh, what, about a month ago or uh, or so when I saw Lauren posting about Planescape. And I'm like, hey, 
you want to come on our recording someday and talk about it? And here we are. So, and, and I will, I'll jump in and say, thank you so much for contacting me and giving me plenty of time to have the time to do it. Because uh, when you did contact me, I was like, this sounds amazing, exciting. And I don't have five minutes to rub together. So right. I, I really appreciate it as, as someone whose schedule is wonky that you contacted me with plenty of advance notice. Yep. Bless you for that. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah, we, well, I try when I can. And then sometimes mm. uh, people can't make it at the last minute and I'm scrambling to see if we can find a fourth and we don't, but we get through. Yeah. So we still love Brandis though, even though uh, he forgot about putting us on the calendar that he was going to be out of town. So. <laughs> yeah, but we can't, we can't fight with family, not in the holidays. No, no. That's a, <sighs> isn't that the well, main time to fight with family <laughs> Oh, well, hopefully not. Hopefully, hopefully it is. The, the, the worst fight is about uh, who wants the dark meat or the white meat on the turkey. I don't know. I've seen heard a lot of fights uh, about whether or not we should even be having turkey. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that is episode 362, where we sort of got glitched and found new incarnations of ourselves as we discuss Planescape Adventures in the Multiverse. That's the title of it, right? Yes. In this episode of I'm also lost.